0: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining The American Revolution. This week, episode 239, Winter at Morristown. Last week, I covered the court-martial of Benedict Arnold, which took place during the Continental Army's winter encampment at Morristown, New Jersey, over the winter of 1779 and 1780. This week, I want to cover some of the issues that befell the army itself during that winter encampment. By the end of November 1779, the Continental Army had completed its fighting season for the year. For most of the year, Washington had remained near West Point in New York. This gave him the greatest flexibility to pivot into upstate New York if the Sullivan campaign had run into trouble, to move into New England if British forces at Newport, Rhode Island went on the offensive, or the ability to move south into New Jersey if the main British force opted to move in that direction from New York City. As it turned out, the British didn't do much of anything that year, but protect the land that they already had. In fact, in October, the British abandoned its long-held position in Newport and concentrated its forces in and around New York City. I'm going to cover the reasons for that decision next week when we look at British plans for 1780. The evacuation of Rhode Island greatly reduced the threat that the British might try something in New England beyond the nuisance coastal raids. It permitted Washington to focus the Continental Army on the main British encampment at New York City. With that in mind, he moved the bulk of his army to the area around Morristown, New Jersey. This was not the first time the army visited Morristown. In early 1777, after the battles of Trenton and Princeton, the army had encamped at Morristown. At that time, the army was much smaller, but still left its mark on the area. A great many soldiers and civilians had died of smallpox that winter. Now, in 1779, the army was much larger, but at least it had been inoculated for smallpox. Washington kept his army in the mountains so that they could keep a better eye on the British in New York City and also so that they would have the high ground should the British decide to attack. The winter camp at Morristown was about 20 miles north of the winter camp at Middlebrook, where the army had stayed a year earlier. Part of the reason for this change was to put the army about one day's closer march to West Point, should the British decide to launch an attack there. Another reason was likely that the army had wiped out many of the natural resources, including firewood, that were around Middletown and they wanted to move into an area that had more resources for the army. The main encampment near Morristown came on a wooded property known as Jockey Hollow. It was owned by Henry Wick, a captain of cavalry in the local militia and a known patriot. Part of the encampment also fell on the adjoining land, that of Peter Kemble. Kemble was an older man in his 70s, but he was also a known loyalist. Kemble had been the head of the Provincial Legislature when the war began and left politics when the Assembly was dissolved in 1776 in favor of a new Patriot government. His son, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Kemble, was the Deputy Adjutant General for the British Army. Colonel Kemble had also been the head of Army Intelligence, although he had recently ceded that position to Major John Andre. Another son, William, was a British naval captain, and another, Samuel, was the collector of the Port of New York in British-occupied New York City. A fourth son, Robert, served as a commissary officer in the British Army. And one of Peter's daughters, Margaret Kemble, was married to General Thomas Gage, the British commander of North America, at the outset of the war. With so many family members fighting with the Loyalists, you might ask why Kemble was not thrown in jail and his land seized outright. Peter had wisely signed over his lands to another son, Richard Kemble, who at least nominally supported the Patriot cause. Peter was also friends with George Washington from before the war, a connection that may have helped shield him from attacks by Patriots. So the Continental Army settled into the area and the remaining members of the Kemble family, who were still in the area, kept their heads down and stayed quiet about any Loyalist tendencies they may have continued to maintain. Although there were no major battles that winter, Washington lost his most senior general in the Continental Army. Israel Putnam was one of the most active and inspiring officers when the Continental Army formed in 1775. At that time, he passed over several more senior Connecticut officers to become part of the founding class of Continental Major Generals, along with Artemis Ward, Charles Lee, and Philip Schuyler. By late 1779, Ward and Schuyler had resigned their commissions, and Lee had been suspended from service and would resign before his suspension ended. That left General Putnam as the Senior Major General in the Continental Army. He was ahead of Horatio Gates, William Heath, Nathaniel Greene, and Benedict Arnold. That said, over the course of the war, Putnam had not exactly proven his merit to General Washington. As a result, he had been given less critical independent commands where combat was not particularly likely. In late 1779, Putnam was in command of the Maryland Line, which was stationed about two miles south of West Point in New York. He was working with Washington and others to build up the defenses around West Point. Putnam's last real combat was an inadvertent encounter while he was in Connecticut recruiting in early 1779. When General Tryon had led British forces against Connecticut coastal towns, Putnam rallied some local militia to challenge them and ended up making his famous escape from capture by riding down a steep hill. See episode 211 for more details on that. When the Army moved into winter quarters at Morristown, General Putnam returned home to Connecticut for a few days before making his way down to New Jersey. As he left his home in Connecticut for the ride to Morristown, the General suffered a numbness in his right arm and leg. He attempted to shake it off and keep going. However, it turned out to be a paralytic stroke that disabled him. With that sudden event, Putnam's military career came to an end. He hoped he would recover and resume his command, but he never fully regained control of his body. He would live for another decade, but he remained at home on his farm in Connecticut. After the army arrived in Morristown in late November and early December, the soldiers set about building cabins for the winter. By this time, the army had become experienced in building winter quarters. The cabins were built to exacting specifications, each one 14 by 16 feet and six and a half feet tall at the eaves. Each regiment built three rows of eight houses each for its soldiers. Each cabin housed about a dozen men and included straw bunks and a fireplace. Each regiment had a cleared area in front of the huts for assembly. Huts for regimental officers were built behind the other huts and were only built after the enlisted men's huts were completed. In total, over the course of about two months, the Army built about 1,000 cabins, housing about twelve to 13,000 men. The location was dubbed Log House City and immediately became the largest town in New Jersey, probably the fourth or fifth largest in the United States overall. General Washington stayed at the home of Theodosia Ford. The Ford Mansion was about five miles north of the main army at Jockey Hollow and was one of the largest mansions in the area. Ford's husband, Jacob Ford, had been a Patriot officer who had died of pneumonia during the army's first occupation of the area in 1777. Washington filled up the home, occupying it with five of his aides-de-camp and 18 servants. After a few weeks, Martha also joined her husband there as well. The Ford family squeezed into two bedrooms on the first floor, while Washington and his retinue took over the rest of the house. Other officers occupied other area homes. General Arthur Sinclair stayed with the Wicks, and General William Smallwood moved in with the Kembles. The winter at Morristown was widely regarded as the hardest winter of the war. The winters at Valley Forge and Middlebrook were quite mild by comparison. Freezing temperatures and numerous snowstorms made life exceedingly difficult in Morristown. There was already snow on the ground in early December when most of the Army arrived. A series of storms in December, followed by a blizzard in early January, left more than four feet of snow on the ground. In addition to the cold and snow, brutal winds swept through the area, making life miserable for everyone. The soldiers, many without adequate clothing, had to build their cabins in the snow. Many were completed during or after the January blizzard, with some soldiers still living in tents and awaiting housing in February. The Hudson River and the New York Harbor froze solid that winter. There were reports of British soldiers traveling from Manhattan to Staten Island on horse-drawn sleighs over the ice. General Washington even considered launching a full-scale invasion of the city having his men charge across the ice, but lack of supplies made that plan impossible. Instead, his concerns turned to whether the British might use the ice to attack the Continentals. Food and clothing shortages were nothing new for the Continental Army, but the brutal winter made things so much worse. The snow blocked the roads, making it nearly impossible to get food to the camp. When Martha Washington arrived in Philadelphia on December 21st in her coach, she found herself unable to continue because the snow had blocked all of the roads. General Washington had to send a sleigh to bring her the remainder of the way to Morristown. Martha vowed that in future years she would make sure to arrive earlier in the season to avoid difficulties as she faced in reaching her husband that year. On December 15th, shortly after the Army's arrival, Washington wrote to the President of Congress, Samuel Huntington, because of the lack of food, quote, "I find our prospects are infinitely worse than they have been at any period of the war, and that unless some expedient can be instantly adopted, a dissolution of the army for want of subsistence is unavoidable." The next day he wrote a circular letter to state leaders which said, quote, "The situation of the army with respect to supplies is beyond description alarming it has been 5 or 6 weeks past on half allowance and we have not 3 days bread or a third allowance on hand nor anywhere within reach in january washington wrote to hunting again reporting that his men had gone several days without any food at all soldiers accounts from the winter recount the men trying to survive by eating tree bark, the soles of their shoes, and some unfortunate pet dogs. Out of desperation, Washington ordered most of the army's horses sent to Pennsylvania so that the men could eat the corn that had been provided as horse fodder. He also sent home early many soldiers whose enlistments would expire over the winter in order to cut down on the number of mouths to feed. Part of the frustration for the Army was that there really wasn't a general food shortage in the country. Local farms in New Jersey had had a pretty good harvest the prior fall. But because the Continentals had no money, all they could provide were promissory notes that might eventually be paid in Continental currency, which was also plummeting in value every day. As I've said before, even patriotic farmers could not afford to give away their produce. They relied on the income from these farms to feed their families. A great many farmers ended up selling to the British in New York. If they could get their crops or cattle to Sandy Point, New Jersey, they could get the food aboard ships to be taken to Manhattan. Getting cattle or crops through the enemy lines, of course, was dangerous. Continental patrols could stop and seize wagons headed for the enemy. Many dealers ended up becoming smugglers buying from local farms for gold or silver, no questions asked, then taking the risk themselves to get the food to New York where they could sell at a substantial profit. The result was plenty of food in the area, but very little of it getting to the Continental Army. Washington was loath to permit his soldiers to just go out and plunder the locals. To avoid that, Washington put requisition requirements on each local town to provide a certain amount of food. The army made clear this was not voluntary. If the locals did not produce the required amount of food, then foraging units from the army would come in, confiscate everything they had, and not provide any compensation at all. The soldiers could not provide for themselves. Many men were unfit for duty because their pants had literally rotted away and fallen off their bodies. Many had no shoes and had to borrow shoes from their comrades just to walk out of the cabin. By January, the army was even out of paper money for even nominal payments for food and clothing. The soldiers had not been paid in months, not that paying them would have done much good. Continental paper money was nearly worthless. One captain noted that he had paid the equivalent of an entire year's salary for a pair of shoes. Desperate soldiers defied the weather and standing orders against looting to find food held by area farmers. Washington noted that his army was, quote, becoming a band of robbers. In January, there was virtually nothing to feed the soldiers, and Washington may have been a little more understanding about men seeking to feed themselves by any means necessary. Once the locals began responding to the military supply quotas, the army cracked down on plundering. Public orders announced that any soldier found out of camp after dark would be lashed on the spot, those found stealing from civilians could receive even harsher penalties, including the possibility of hanging. General De Kalb noted that, quote, Those who have only been in Valley Forge or Middlebrook during the last two winters, but have not tasted the cruelties of this one, know not what it is to suffer. General Washington wrote to Lafayette, who was still in France, quote, The oldest people now living in this country do not remember so hard a winter as the one we are now emerging from. By the spring of 1780, when the army began thinking about closing its winter encampment, the Continental Army had been decimated. Nearly 10% of the 12,000 men who began the winter encampment at Morristown had deserted. Thousands more had left following the end of their enlistments, been redeployed, or died from disease or exposure. The result was a Continental Army of less than 8,000 men facing the main British Army still in New York. And of those 8,000, less than 5,000 were fit for duty. Back in Philadelphia, the delegates received Washington's increasingly desperate letters about the Army falling apart that winter. The elected leaders recognized there were shortages everywhere, but the real problem must be waste, fraud, and abuse within the Army. Its response was to send a committee to figure out how the Army could clean up its act and become functional once again. The committee made up of Philip Schuyler of New York, John Matthews of South Carolina, and Nathaniel Peabody of New Hampshire. Schuyler initially tried to beg off, saying that as a former officer, he would have a bias in favor of the Army. But his fellow delegates convinced him to go. Congress gave the committee its instructions— You are to abolish unnecessary posts, to erect others, to discharge useless officers, to stop rations improperly issues, and are hereby authorized to exercise every power which may be necessary to effect a reformation of abuses and the general arrangement of those departments which are in any wise connected with the matters committed to your charge. The committee didn't make it to camp until late April. On May 10th, about two weeks after they had been in camp, they wrote back to Congress saying that General Washington's letters informing Congress of the suffering, deprivation, and morale of the soldiers were a complete understatement. Quote, their starving condition, their want of pay, and the variety of hardships that they have been driven to sustain has soured their tempers and produced a spirit of discontent which begins to display itself under a complexion of the most alarming hue. In short, conditions imposed on the army had put them on the verge of mutiny. If Congress did not act to change this and do it really soon, the army could dissolve or even turn against its own leaders. While conditions at Morristown were some of the worst of the war, the officers did make efforts to keep up their own morale, at least. The officers pulled their money with an initiative led by Martha Washington to hold a series of dances and socials over the winter. It provided some measure of relief to the suffering and tedium of the winter encampment. Officers put up $400 each of their own money, in inflated continental dollars, of course, to help pay for the costs of these parties. Martha Washington was not the only notable lady at camp. Many officers had their wives join them for the winter. Nathaniel Green's wife, Katie Green, showed up at camp pregnant with her fourth child. She would go into labor and have that child in camp in January. It was also a time for new romance. Over the winter, 22-year-old Betsy Schuyler, the daughter of General Philip Schuyler, came to Morristown that winter to stay with her aunt. Betsy and Martha Washington became long-lasting friends that winter but it was not the most significant relationship that she would make. Colonel Alexander Hamilton came to pay a visit at the home of Betsy's aunt. The two had met about two years earlier when Hamilton stayed at her father's home for a brief visit. At that time, they really didn't seem to connect. On this meeting, however, Hamilton became love-struck immediately. According to one story, he was so stricken by his first visit to Morristown with Betsy that he forgot the password to re-enter camp when returning home. The two quickly became inseparable. When Hamilton had to leave camp, as required by his military duties, the love-struck pair would write letters to one another. Betsy's father, General Philip Schuyler, was by this time a member of Congress, and as I mentioned, he visited the camp in that spring as part of Congress's investigatory committee. After receiving his blessing, the couple got engaged in April. Betsy would remain with the army as a camp follower after winter camp broke up, and the following December 1780, Hamilton and Schuyler would get married. The Morristown encampment would remain active until June 1780, and I'll cover a few other events from the camp in a future episode, but for most soldiers, it would be remembered as the most brutal winter of the war due to its cold and deprivation. Next week, we're going to head across the river in New York, where General Clinton makes plans for the British Army for the coming year. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter Knox Press. I've mentioned Knox Press is a great source of books about the American Revolution, they are in the process of producing a trilogy by David O. Stewart about a family of Hessians who moved to New England. Go to knoxpress.com for more details. I had the opportunity to interview David Stewart in a American Revolution Roundtable meeting a week or two ago. It was really interesting. He's a great author, great speaker, and I heartily recommend his work. I also want to thank Brenda Richmond for a one-time gift via PayPal. Now, I say one time to differentiate PayPal gifts from my continuing monthly pledges on Patreon, but Brenda has made quite a few payments via PayPal gifts, and I very much appreciate all of them. Thanks also to Tony Danaher, who also made a one-time gift after finding this podcast on TuneIn. Last week, I mentioned a few upcoming events, including the Conference of the American Revolution in Williamsburg, Virginia. I also mentioned the roundtable presentation that I was going to have last week with David O. Stewart. If you want to get details on these events as they're coming up, please sign up for my mailing list. I know I mentioned these events on my podcast, but an email will include links and make it much easier to find out more information of them right away. I've mostly stopped sending out my emails every single week with each new episode because I figure most of you will already download these episodes automatically via a subscription to one of the many platforms that are out there, and I really don't want to just overload you with meaningless emails. That said, I do like to send out an occasional email, especially for upcoming events, including my monthly roundtables. So if you want to stay up to date on those things, please sign up for my email list. I promise these emails will only be occasional, and no one else will get your address through my mailing list. Go to my website at amrevpodcast.com for more details on how to sign up. This week, we covered the winter at Morristown. I think it is really difficult to bring home to our modern brains just how difficult it was to survive these winter encampments. This was a brutally cold and snowy winter, Now imagine having to spend a winter yourself in a wooden cabin with virtually no heat. You might not have any shoes, meaning a walk to the trench to relieve yourself could be a horribly painful experience. You might not have a coat or even pants to keep yourself completely covered. You might not even have a blanket. Imagine the misery of that cold and then add to that that you might be on one-half or even one-third rations or maybe getting no food at all for several days. This level of misery is simply unfathomable to most of us today. Most of the historians I've spoken with say the real chance of Americans losing the war did not come from the British in battle. The real threat came from the horrific conditions the soldiers had to endure and their willingness to stay the course and keep fighting despite all these deprivations. Morristown was certainly one of the times when this endurance was most needed. My book recommendation this week gives much more detail about the Morristown encampment. It's called The Uncertain Revolution, Washington and the Continental Army at Morristown by John T. Cunningham. The book is a detailed look at the encampments at Morristown. The author is a New Jersey native who grew up near Morristown. He started life as a journalist, but also wrote a massive number of books, mostly local histories about New Jersey and a great many of them during the Revolutionary War era. The Uncertain Revolution was one of his last books, published in 2007 when the author was 92 years old. Mr. Cunningham passed away in 2012. My online recommendation is a look at one of the generals who I mentioned left service over the winter. General Israel Putnam had a stroke and was forced to retire from active service. I talked about Putnam a great deal in the early episodes when the war was just getting started. He was really an impressive figure and a leader of men. However, he never really gained the confidence of Washington or some of the other leaders as a commanding general. Nevertheless, he is a fascinating character. You can read the biography Life of Israel Putnam. Old Putt, Major General in the Continental Army by Increase Tarbo online at archive.org. This is a public domain book released in 1876 in time for the Centennial. Speaking of public domain books, I know that free is great, but some folks just don't like the ebook format, especially the sozo format that is available on archive.org. Many of the books scanned on Archive.org need to be cleaned up because the ocular character recognition is just not that accurate. A friend of the show, Michael Mulhern, has embarked on a project to reproduce some of these older works in new paper editions, which have been cleaned up. You can pick up these books for a fairly low price, and I'll include a link in this week's blog entry if you want to find them. My question this week asks... When did Washington's birthday stop being celebrated on February 22nd, and when did we start calling it President's Day? Well, first a bit of history on the holiday. Washington's birthday has at least informally been celebrated since Washington was still alive. Washington personally never made a big deal of his birthday and really did not celebrate it. His journals indicated that he treated it pretty much like any other day. Even so, the tradition sprung up probably because Britain celebrated the king's birthday, so Americans wanted a similar celebration. Given that it was comparing Washington to monarchy, that probably made President Washington even more determined not to make it a big deal. But even after Washington left office, Americans informally continued to celebrate his birthday, and really not that of his successors in the presidential office. It was not until 1878 that Congress passed a law designating February 22nd as a federal holiday. It took effect the following year, 1879. The holiday has been federal law ever since. In 1968, though, under the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, Congress changed the law so that Washington's birthday would be celebrated on the third Monday in February rather than on his actual birthday, February 22nd. Since that change took effect in 1971, the holiday cannot fall on his actual birthday since the third Monday at the latest in February is February 21st. There was a proposal in 1951 to change Washington's birthday to President's Day. Part of the reason for doing this was to combine Washington's celebratory birthday with that of Abraham Lincoln, who has a birthday on February 12th. They didn't want to create back to back holidays a week or two apart, so they thought, let's create a combined President's Day to celebrate the President's. The proposal, however, failed. I'm not sure if there were other attempts, but to this day, federal law calls the holiday Washington's Birthday. The common usage of President's Day gained popular acceptance through the 1970s and 80s, even though it is still Washington's Birthday on the federal statute books. Incidentally, when Washington was born, his date of birth was recorded as February 11th, 1731. This was because, at the time, the New Year started on March 25th, not January 1st. When Washington was a teenager, Parliament passed a 1750 Act which converted the British Empire from the old Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Part of that change resulted in March 25th being the first day of 1751, but then on December 31st of that year, the year changed to 1752. So everybody got a nine-month year. The next year, September 2nd, 1752, was followed the next day by September 14th, skipping 11 days to sync up with the Gregorian calendars. British subjects throughout the empire applied the changes retroactively in order to avoid age discrepancies. So, Washington changed his birth date from February 11, 1731, to February 22, 1732. If you have questions that you would like me to answer, please reach out to me on social media or send me an email. Well, that's all for this week. Please join me again next week for another... American Revolution Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.